Well, we're going to continue our discussion. Thank you for being here again. I'm just curious, who of you were here last week but uh, were unable to be here tonight? Could you raise your... Yeah, I just want to see. We tripped up a few Aggies on that one, but... uh... Yeah, all right, just speaking the truth. Thanks for coming back. Tough and sensitive subject, and uh, appreciate the patience with which you let me ramble a little bit last week. We examined, uh, to the best of my ability anyway, and I'm surely not the final word, but to the best of my ability, we examined a very key and fundamental passage of Scripture so that we could see what the Bible had to say on the subject of homosexuality. And I mentioned to you that tonight, I'd like for us to discuss the uh, possible causes that lead to same-gender attraction. But before we do, I want to tell you a story, and there's not a a shred of truth to it. Uh, I made it up, but there's a point Uh, to it. See if you can get the point as I tell you the story. Uh, There was a family, a pretty good one, consisting of a mom and a dad, and they have to have three children, good kids. And the parents discerned that the kids really uh, would like to have a puppy. And so they decided, because they were loving parents, that they might come home one day to surprise them with a puppy, and that's in fact what they did. And the kids is You can imagine they were little kids, were delighted and really enjoyed this puppy running through the house and uh, getting accustomed to its new environment and they to the puppy. But then things began to take a bit of a turn for the worse. The puppy showed signs of um, aggressiveness and in fact, as it got to be a little older and bigger, it even began to habitually nip the kids. So the parents didn't know exactly what to do, and they felt like they had no choice but to make this indoor dog an outdoor dog. And so they placed it out in the backyard, and that seemed to be a fairly good uh, solution to the problem. However, when the kids would go out to play, there was, uh, you know, swings and stuff like that in their backyard. When the three kids went out to play, the dog, well, at this point, Uh, had developed the habit of rather viciously attacking them. And so the kids couldn't play out there in their own yard. And so the parents decided what they had to do is buy a cage, a kennel, a big kennel. And so they put it out in the backyard and they put this dog in the kennel and they had it locked up. And that's just the way it was for quite some time. And things seemed to be okay, but then something happened. Uh, The parents decided they needed a weekend getaway, and so they planned it. But they were loving parents and wanted to make sure to leave the children in good hands. And so they called a very close relative, an aunt, who the kids loved and who loved the kids, to see if she could come and spend this weekend uh, watching the kids. And so she did. Well, she got up one morning while the kids were still sleeping because she was disturbed by a barking dog in the back she didn't know about how dangerous the dog was to the children. She meant well, but she just had no idea what the history of things 
were with the dog. And so she went out thinking, oh, this poor dog, no wonder he's barking. He's just locked up. And so she, uh, with good intent, let the dog out of the cage. Well, then, not long after this, the little kids woke up and she gave them breakfast. And as had become their custom, they went out in the backyard to play. But on this occasion, you see the dog was now loose. And uh, it, it was a terrible situation, quite a critical thing. Uh, the dog attacked each of the three children, mauled them uh, uh, rather severely, uh, drew blood. And uh, the kids had to be rushed to the emergency room where each uh, some had some rather serious need for surgery and stitches and all the rest. And as I'm sure you could understand, from that day forth, uh, the kids, through no fault of their own, uh, had developed a rather intense fear of dogs. They were not responsible, I'm sure you would agree, for the feelings they had. Those feelings were conjured up by this horrific episode which occurred early on in their lives. But interestingly, as they grew to adulthood, though they all had in common this fear of dogs, interestingly, they responded to these feelings in entirely different ways. For instance, one of the kids, now an adult, uh, decided to become a veterinarian. She decided she wanted to help families who maybe uh, were in possession of a dog like the one she had and who might pose a threat to other children. And she wanted to coach parents and other families with regard to making wise decisions in keeping with what pets were suitable and which ones were a threat to children. So that's what she did. Another one of the kids, on the other hand, simply decided never, ever to have a dog as a pet. That was that person's response. And, and then the third sibling, again, now an adult, uh, had a, uh, a much more extreme response to the trauma experienced by all three. Here's what he did. He was living alone, and nightly, uh, late at night, uh, so that most of his neighbors were asleep, he would take with him some poison meat and go around the neighborhood and put the poison meat in the yards where he knew uh, the dogs were. And they would eat it, of course, and then they would die. And he did this for quite some time until being caught, arrested, and brought to trial for his crime. Uh, well, there was no denying it. He very intentionally and in a premeditated way chose this strategy. And nobody denied that he laced the meat with poison with the very deliberate intent of seeing these dogs die. Uh, but his attorney, his defense attorney, had a very interesting defense on his behalf. He said in the court, though it is true my client has affected this particular plan, we're not denying that, he said you need to know that when he was just a young child, innocent, and during the developmental years of his life, when he was most susceptible and vulnerable, you need to know he experienced a vicious attack by an aggressive dog uh, from which he had to receive surgery and stitches. And this has traumatized him to this day. And he's not responsible for these intense fears. And, and so the, the defense attorney offered this as a, 
uh, mitigating information to mitigate the penalty which might otherwise be placed upon this man. But then the prosecuting attorney said, well, 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 wait just a second. Weren't there three children all? There's just one. Aren't there two others? And the answer is yes. And, and then he said, but, but, but weren't all three children exposed to the same vicious attack? The answer is yes. And, and, and then he said, but how did the other two respond? And the answer was, well, one is now a veterinarian and the other simply decide not to be in possession of a dog. And so the prosecuting attorney said, well, then here you see. Though the early traumatic, traumatic event in the life of the accused surely impacted on him, and though it caused feelings of an involuntary kind and uh, which he is not responsible for, still his behaviors were freely chosen. The early event can explain his present situation, uh, the lawyer said, but it in no wise can excuse his present situation. It didn't obligate, the dog bite did not obligate him to kill other dogs, and the proof is that the same dog bites led to entirely different behavioral choices on the part of the others. And so the man was found guilty of his crime. So, why do I tell you that story? Um, it's because I don't want to tell you other stuff that'll get me in trouble. Okay, no, that's not really it. It has a lot to do with the various causes of a, a homosexual lifestyle. Though early painful, hurtful experiences in a child's uh, development certainly can impact on the child and conjure up inclinations and feelings of an unwanted kind. Uh, early traumatic events can surely affect one's sexual identity. On the other hand, these involuntary feelings do not determine one's sexual choices and behaviors later on in life. That's my point. Folks, feelings are not chosen, but behaviors are. So just as in our story, where the same painful event victimized three kids, and where the same painful event conjured up horribly painful fears of an unwanted kind, still that same event did not determine later on in life the choices each of these now adult children were to make. They were not responsible for the hurt and the fears, but they were responsible for how they responded to the hurts and to the fears. The event made them feel what they did, but the event did not make them do what they did. They each chose to respond differently to these horrific early childhood events. So here's my point. Though there are surely early 
painful events causing feelings about one's sexuality. No event makes one a practicing homosexual. How then does it happen? How does same gender attraction come about? Well, I think the best answer is that there is no one answer. It's multifactorial. There are many contributing factors, and I just want to share as briefly as I can a few of the most prominent, not one of which causes same-gender attraction, but which can contribute to susceptibility to it. For instance, sexual abuse. Do you know it's been estimated that upwards of 80% of women engaged in same-gender relationships have been victims of incest or rape or other forms of sexual abuse. And this is usually perpetrated upon them by a close male family member, a friend or authority figure. Can you imagine, some of you don't have to imagine it because you've experienced it. Others, can you imagine the sense of betrayal? There's a trust relationship. It could be with a parent. It could be with a coach. It could be with a minister who takes advantage of the power imbalance and imposes himself upon you at your most trusting stage in your life. And the sense of betrayal conjures up shame and guilt. Yeah, and possibly even hatred of men because of what has been perpetrated upon you. And can you understand? It's easy to if you are willing to. Can you understand how that kind of thing can contribute to attraction by the victimized woman uh, for other women? She doesn't want to be hurt again. She's not seeking sex. She's seeking safety in a relationship. I didn't say the abuse caused it. I just said the early abuse surely in some cases could contribute to it. With regard to gay men as well, a very well done study has indicated that with regard to men as well, about 80% of them living now the gay lifestyle uh, have been sexually abused in most cases before the age of 10 and with them too, usually by older teenagers or men who they trusted. And that kind of thing can cause great ambivalent feelings. When I say ambivalent, it means you don't know which way to go. Look, one feeling... Um, an abuse victim, male or female, feels is tremendous fear and guilt and shame. They internalize the responsibility for the offense, though they're not responsible. So that's one set of feelings. But the other set of feelings, now hear me here, is actually a sense of pleasure 
I'm not talking about the physical pleasure only. I'm talking about a kind of relational connection. Even though it was monstrously imposed, still it is some form of relational connection. And that, in quotes, positive uh, ingredient in the imposed relationship can surely contribute to same gender inclinations later on in life. So sexual abuse, I didn't say it causes homosexuality, but it surely can create an environment where there's a more of a propensity for same gender. Do you mind if I make a rather dramatic statement? I don't think there's what, well I'm going to whether you mind it or not. I don't think there's one person sitting in here who, given the right circumstances, could not be involved in a homosexual relationship. Now, you'll forgive me for making you feel so bad, but there's no transgression in the Bible that anyone here, given the right circumstances, isn't capable of. For instance, some of you right now are inclined to want to kill me. So I just wanted to talk to you about the contributing circumstances that can shape a person's sexuality. Here's another one. Disruption in normal bonding between same-gender peers. See, here's what happens. And you know about it, but let me spell it out. Little boys gravitate towards little boys. That is really normal. Same-gender attachment. And then you, the same is true of little girls. Little girls play with little girls. This is normative. And then what happens after this early phase of relating, most of us move into heterosexual friendships. You know how it is. When a boy discovers these marvelous creatures called girls, they kind of smell nice and all that sort of deal, and you want to hang out, same generally happens with girls with regard to these little boys. So that's normal. But what if healthy, normal, same-gender bonding, when a child is very young, what if it is interrupted? Well, how could it be interrupted? Well, let me give you a few examples. Let me just take boys in this case, but it applies to any gender. What if the boy is unusually sized so he doesn't fit in with the other boys? What if he's much smaller than the other boys? What if he's overweight? What if he weighs more than the typical kids in the neighborhood? I'm telling you, same gender, little boy bonding is interfered with that. You know how cruel kids could be. What if uh, one little boy is uh, afflicted physically in some way? Uh, he's an exception to the norm, and that's going to interfere with same gender bonding. What if one little boy gravitates less to baseball and athletic 
endeavors, typical of most little boys? What if he's not athletic? What if he's clumsy and frankly has no interest in sports? What if instead he gravitates towards activities and pastimes that generally are, are more typical of little girls? He's not a homosexual. He's just designed differently. What if he is? Well, I got to tell you, he will be separated out from the peer group. What if the little boy is effeminate? Not every effeminate person is gay. What if the little boy is effeminate? He's not going to fit in with the other little boys. And so his normal same-gender bonding is going to be interfered with at an early age. But then what happens later on is this. The need for same-gender bonding doesn't go away. It has remained unsatisfied, and this person wants to satisfy the need for same-gender bonding. And so if he missed out on it as a little kid, later on into adolescence and early adulthood, he may enter into a same-gender relationship at first. It's not sexual at all. It's to meet an emotional need, but in most cases then, after crossing a given emotional line, it'll turn into sexual involvement. I didn't say any of this causes homosexuality any more than a dog bite at an early age causes you to have murderous intentions with regard to every other dog on the planet. It just says it causes you to have intensely uncomfortable feelings which you are now obligated to respond to. And some people respond to this kind of feeling not fitting in uh, by making it happen uh, in an unacceptable way. Now let me point out one more major contributing factor. It has to do with parent-child relationships. Now here's where um, I'm nervous. And I'll tell you why. I want to point out to you some of the parenting experiences which sometimes uh, create an atmosphere uh, in which a growing child could be left without the satisfaction of needs so that the child gravitates later towards same gender relations. I have to tell you about it because it's a reality. But I've been surprised this week to be visited by so many of you who are the loving parents of gay children or other family members. And you're nervous about tonight because you think I'm going to blame you for it. Could I tell you something? What if I did? What if I did? Your goal is not to be beholden to me. Your goal is to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stuart Rothberg has the capacity to say a whole bunch of goofy things that just don't ring true. Don't look to me with regard for your permission to feel forgiven. 
Why don't you go to the perfect father if you're feeling like an imperfect one? And why don't you make sure you've asked him to forgive you? And then why don't you enjoy being forgiven? You feel terrible because you're an imperfect parent. Well, doggone it, join the crowd. Do you know God is not looking for perfect parents? He's looking for dependent parents. So if your child has made choices later on in life you do not approve of, instead of beating yourself to death, and by the way, the last time I checked, someone was already whipped for you. Instead of doing that, why don't you say, oh God, thank you for forgiving me. I'm imperfect. So I want to tread lightly here because I don't want you leaving thinking I said you are responsible for the choices your children made later. But I do want to point out some of the patterns that can give rise to certain feelings in the lives of children. For instance, you know that every child has a need for healthy emotional bonding with their parents especially with the same gender parent. It's a vital ingredient in the process of growing to feel complete and secure and whole as a male or as a female. But for some children, healthy parental bonding has not happened for a lot of reasons. In fact, some children have a very hurtful and harmful experience with parents. And so in order to prevent further harm, even a young child may choose to distance himself or herself from the parent who has harmed them and made them feel nervous. They want to attach, especially with the same gender parent, but if for some reason the same gender parent is not easy to attach to, then the child will protect himself or herself by detaching. That's what happens. So what are the things that are capable of causing the detachment? A lot of stuff. What if the parent means well? What if the dad means well, loves the child, but has a chronic illness and cannot bond with the child because the illness itself is incapacitating him? There's nothing malicious about that. It happened. Sometimes a dad is away a lot. He's traveling on business because he wants to provide for the family. And even then, without any uh, malice, the child grows without a healthy emotional bonding with dad because dad is kind of there but not there. Can you see how attachment can be interfered with even by well-intentioned dad? Look, let's face it, sometimes dad, dads didn't experience healthy emotional bonding with their own dads, and you can't give what you didn't get. They don't know how to bond with their children. Maybe you're one of them. Please don't beat up on your... Your father knows what you've experienced. 
Throw yourself upon the throne of grace instead of on the cross on which Jesus died. There's only room for one. He died for all of your sins, deliberate and and unintentional. But these are things that can interfere with healthy emotional bonding between a child and the same gender parent. And so the child has been let down either with malice or unintentionally, and the child doesn't want to be let down again, so he detaches from the same gender parent in order to protect himself. But the need to attach to the same gender parent just doesn't go away, and so it will remain until it is fulfilled. And so sometimes this unmet need to attach to the same gender parent will take the form of attachment to a same gender other. You see it? That's not a monstrous person. That's not a horrible person. That's an empty person. That's a hurt and wounded person. That's a person whose needs were not met at a critical time and is trying to have valid needs met. The problem is it's outside the will of God. Not the needs. The strategies designed to meet the need. Well, what about the opposite gender parent? Let's say there is this emotional detachment, say, between father and young son. Uh, how could the mom intensify all this? Well, uh, if the mom is not getting her emotional needs met by the distant dad and husband, Sometimes she will attach herself inappropriately close uh, to the child in order to get her own emotional needs met. And so she can become extremely overprotective or even domineering, thus giving the young child uh, the nonverbal message that he isn't very manly. So the combination of factors, they do not cause active engagement in the homosexual lifestyle, but they sure can contribute to those unwanted, non-chosen inclinations. Now let me move on here a little bit. Some people will say, everything I have just told you is a bunch of junk. Uh, and then I'm just, I don't, you don't know what you're talking about is what they'll say. Um, and the reason they'll say that is there's a rather simple explanation uh, for why someone is gay. And it has to do with genetics. It's all about genetics. In other words, gay people are simply people who are born gay. That settles it. Forget about all this other developmental, you know, unhealthy bonding. Gay people are people who are born gay. In fact, there are studies uh, which have purported to back it up. And I just want to briefly acquaint you with two of the perhaps most well-known. Uh, there was a man named Dr. Simon LeVay, and he studied cadavers, a number of them. 
And he decided some were homosexual men who had died and some were heterosexual men who had died. And he studied a part of their brains and he found out that this particular part of the brain, he said, was larger in the heterosexual man than in the homosexual men. Thus, uh, he was led to the conclusion that there is a genetic basis for homosexuality. That's what he concluded. Well, let me just tell you in brief... Uh, that his conclusions are grossly inaccurate for like a bazillion reasons, but I'll just give you two. One, his results were absolutely inconsistent. It simply was not the case that this particular area of the brain was smaller in all of Dr. LeVay's homosexual cadavers and larger in all of the heterosexual cadavers he examined. It simply was not consistent. Secondly, on what basis did he determine that some of the men were in fact heterosexual and some homosexual? He did this on the basis of very flimsy data. Very poor research design to the extent that Dr. LeVay's conclusions were not widely accepted at all by the scientific community. For instance, Dr. Ann Fausto Sterling, a scientist at Brown University, said, my freshman biology students know enough to sink this study. It wasn't a good study. But there's another one. It was a study of twins, and it was done by two researchers, Michael Bailey and Richard Pillard, and they compared identical twins and fraternal twins, and you may know that there's a, a kind of a, um, a closer genetic tie, let's put it that way, between identical twins than fraternal twins. They're all twins, but there's a more similar genetic makeup amongst identical twins than fraternal twins. And so what he did is he did a study of twins, and in each... Uh, of the couplets of twins, one was homosexual. And what he found out is that amongst identical twins, where one was homosexual, 50, in 52% of the cases, the other was as well. But with regard to fraternal twins, uh, the incidence uh, of homosexuality with both of the twins was only 22%. And he said, look, that proves it. There's more of a genetic tie with identical twins. 52% are both gay. Less of a genetic tie with fraternal twins. Only 22% are both gay. Can you see what's wrong with what he's saying? Let's take identical twins. If 52% of the identical twins, where one of the twins is gay, and therefore the other is gay, what happened to the other 48%? If the conclusion of these researchers is accurate, there shouldn't be 48% of identical twins in which one is gay, where the other ain't. You know what this means? You can't explain this simply by genetics. Listen, listen. Do you know each of the twins in the study was raised in the same home? So how do you know that when gayness developed, it was due to genetics rather than environment? It's the old argument. Heredity or environment. The studies are very inconclusive about Not only that, 
Other twin studies have absolutely produced entirely different results. For instance, there was a study reported in the British Journal of Psychiatry which indicated that homosexuals who are twins uh, were studied, and it was found that only 20% of homosexual twins had a gay co-twin. Not 52%, only 22%. And so the researchers in that study concluded that Genetic factors are insufficient explanation of the development of sexual orientation. But I've spoken to many gay people, and I'm so grateful that they have allowed me to. It's a privilege. And many gay people say, no, I was born this way. And they mean it and are very sincere and authentic about it. But I think one of the reasons why they think they were born with same gender inclinations is that they became aware of them at a very early age and are coming to the blatantly false conclusion that therefore they were born this way. But folks, here's a dogmatic statement. I defy you to prove me wrong. There is absolutely no good research supporting genetic causation for homosexuality. None. Zero. Nada. None. But let me offer this. What if there came to be one? What if there was a study based on good research design, the ones I shared with you are really based on poor research design, but let's say there one, was one based on good research design and accepted by the wider scientific community, which did in fact indicate a genetic link and a homosexuality. I ask you this question, so what? What difference does it make? That something is inborn, let's say homosexuality, still doesn't make it acceptable in the eyes of a holy God. Can I tell you something? Everything wrong about you is inborn. Everything wrong about me. Everything that stinks about me is part of my genetic inheritance. Did you know that? You're a prideful person, you're an angry person, you're a deceitful person, you're a lustful person. Because you were born that way, I shall prove it to you. Psalm 51 verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. You can find a genetic causation for everything. They're finding it for violent behavior. They're finding it for compulsive overeating. They're finding it for uh, compulsive shopping. I mean, what? <laughs> Nobody was born as a blank slate. Nobody was born good and then had bad life experiences which made you bad. You were born bad and you messed up life. You polluted the environment. So did I. We were conceived. So even if there is a genetic study that one day will prove a link between genetics and homosexuality, so what? Folks, 
You who have an inappropriate heterosexual attraction to those to whom you are not married, you didn't get it because mom didn't breastfeed you. <laughs> you got it because you were born a sinner. And you are acting out sinful inclinations. Once again, your inclination to be attracted to women to whom you are not married is not the issue. Responding to the inclination by having an affair is the issue. Getting bit by the dog so that feelings of fear are conjured up in you does not make you a guilty party. Now going around and killing dogs makes you a guilty party. Being born with inclinations outside of the will of God doesn't bring condemnation in his eyes. It's not the temptation, it's giving in to the temptation. I want to know here who isn't genetically messed up. Listen, some of you here, some, may have been born cute, but you sure weren't born sinless. You may be a cute sinner at birth. You may be an ugly little scroungy, looking like a little rat, sinner at birth, but you're a sinner at birth. And the proof is, it doesn't take too long before you make sinfully selfish demands on your poor mom who birthed you. You don't even let her sleep. That's not learned behavior. That's innate, inherent behavior because we've been conceived in sin. So that's why the whole genetic argument to me is academic, doesn't matter. Look, folks, that we can explain homosexual feelings does not mean we can excuse homosexual behavior. That we can explain a man's uh, excessive interest in pornography as his attempt to get close to another human being, perhaps without the risk of real intimacy. Though we can explain that amongst heterosexual people, doesn't mean we can excuse it. And the same is true with the issue of homosexuality. And so... The homosexual feelings are not chosen, and that's why you hear very sincere gay people saying, I didn't choose this. Do you think I want to be this way? Do you think I want to feel like I don't fit in? Do you think I want to be demeaned and called names? Do you think I wouldn't want to be different? You know, they're right. They didn't choose it the feelings, the inclinations, but they did choose how they respond to it. See, that's, that's what we're, we're getting at. And so regardless of the backgrounds we come from, the pain we have experienced, the deficits we now live with, we have a choice about what we do about it. That's the way it is. My father was an alcoholic. I'm prone to it. Therefore, I've chosen not to drink. <laughs> you know, it's not rocket science. I'm not responsible that I was born into a family 
with an alcoholic out of control who used it to rely on, who worshipped it as his God, or used it as a coping mechanism. I'm not responsible for all the insecurity and all the rest that uh, caused in my life. I'm not responsible for my inclination for the stuff because I know what it smells like and all the rest. But I am responsible for what I do about all that. And I've just decided not to go near it. It's not virtue. It's just common sense. You're not going to hold me responsible for the dysfunctional early experience I had, but I hope you hold me responsible for responding inappropriately to it by being mastered by anything, including alcohol. You see that? So... My kids in the opening story that I made up were exposed to exactly the same pain. But do you notice in the story they chose to respond to it entirely differently? <clears throat> so for parents here of children who are uh, gay, it is possible you may have failed to meet your child's emotional needs. It is possible. Nobody's perfect. But though that may be the case, you must know you didn't cause your child to choose the gay lifestyle. You don't have that much power. You're giving yourself way too much power. Sure, maybe they grew with a bit of a hole that you couldn't fill. <laughs> What child has? The only perfect one is the Lord Jesus. Sure, there are some gaps. You can acknowledge that. You can confess that if you'd like. You can even ask your child for forgiveness with reference to it. But those emotional gaps didn't determine that your child would be gay. Your child's volitional choice explains that. So, though homosexual inclinations are not a choice, acting on those inclinations most certainly is. So, someone whose life experiences, as we have mentioned, may have contributed to same-gender attraction, and who may not have had any control over those painful life experiences, still that person can do plenty today in dealing with it, for instance, that struggling, lusting, heterosexual man uh, who is having affairs, or that person who is hooked at home on internet uh, poker or pornography, or that person is eating themselves to death because food comforts them uh, where uh, as nobody else has been able to, or that person locked into compulsive buying uh, because you get some temporary gratification from it. Whatever it is, because of early life experiences which may explain the unwanted pattern of behavior, it doesn't excuse a bit of it. And there are things you can do to break the patterns. And one of it, those things is to cry out to God for help. Oh, God, help me. I'm a slave. Free me. Master me. Take me up. I'm down. I need outside help. Help. 
I've tried to meet my needs my way, and now I'm involved in a deeply entrenched pattern of behavior I cannot shake. Oh, God, help me. You know, that's one thing you can do. Here's the second thing. You can resist the temptation. That you are strongly tempted to do something does not obligate you to do that something. Come on. Cop out. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good and is outside the will of God, don't do it. Come on. Resist. You can cry out to God. You can resist the temptation. You know what else you can do? You can seek accountability with a safe person. Not everybody. Don't set yourself up to get kicked. You can establish accountability with a safe person. How are you doing? Would you call me at your moment of temptation? Let me pray for you. Let me help. Let me go down the road with you. You know what else you could do? You can establish a connection with a healthy church. Hmm. For what purpose? Maybe to find the healthy family you never had. That's the purpose. Maybe to find the acceptance you never had. That's the purpose. Maybe to buddy up with some people who love you so much that they can show you the Christ life so that you can live large. Maybe to introduce you to the perfect one who'll never exploit you or take advantage of you and who'll never let you go. Maybe you could hook up in a church with someone who will lovingly look you in the eye and say you were given life by the giver of life, but you're living life apart from him. How in the world can anything go right for you? You're living in God's world as if he's not relevant. Maybe in a healthy church you can find people who will remind you directly or even directly, God is not an option. He's relevant in the equation of life. Now, folks, I think this is a safe and healthy church. Not everybody. I'm talking about the character of the church at large, the leadership of the church. I think this is a healthy and safe environment. So here's what I'd like for us to do next week, if we make it to next week, who knows? I'd like for us to talk more about what a healthy church can and ought to do to help, in my opinion, one of the most unreached people groups in our midst, gay people, homosexual and lesbian people, People struggling with same gender attraction. It is an unreached people group desperately looking for acceptance and family ties. Desperately looking for the God they only feels is judging them but who wants to wrap his arms around them. That is an unreached people 
group. We ought to be a church filled with missionaries to the gay community. If not, where are they going to go? Can you tell me? So I want for us in our concluding session, it'll be next week, to talk about what can we do to embrace people struggling in this particular area? What should we do? What would be the attitude of Christ, the head of the church? That's the attitude we, the church, must copy and imitate. So, Lord willing, that's what we'll discuss next week. Thank you for calling and emailing and coming to visit this week. I learned a lot. Some of us got closer. You corrected me in some ways. You helped me to be more sensitive. Some of you accepted some of the things I said. We dialogued. We were really family. We spoke about what really matters. And the relationship is intact. If that could happen with mere fleshly human beings, can you imagine how honestly and authentically Almighty God invites you into conversation with Him? Do you know you've never done anything that could possibly disappoint Him? Because disappointment means one had an expectation of you that was not met. But God doesn't have any false expectations of you. Your misbehavior doesn't surprise him. He saw it from beginning of time. He saddened that you have chosen an independent lifestyle and a coping mechanism apart from him. Do you know the sin of homosexuality is just a symptom? It's not the sin of homosexuality. The underlying problem is the sin of autonomy from God. That's the basis of every sin. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. When we do anything... To take care of ourselves instead of making recourse to God. That's the sin of autonomy. It's this insatiable craving to be our own gods. That's the sin. And do you know that God is waiting for us to knock on his door and to say, Would you open your heart to me? Would you let me feel your embrace? I'm dying on the inside. Giver of life, would you give me life abundant and eternal? I believe you proved to me your willingness to do so because you gave he who was most precious to you for me. You gave your only begotten son. The perfect father sent the perfect son to die for imperfect ones like you and me. What a demonstration of God's willingness to take us into his embrace just as we are and help us to live life large. If we people can talk to one another openly, how much more inviting is Almighty God? And so, Lord Jesus, you're able to help us through anything 
Can a heterosexual addicted to unacceptable sex change? Sure. Can someone hooked on internet pornography change? Of course. Can somebody who steals break the pattern? Of course. Can someone involved in a physical relationship with the same gender partner change? Give me a break. Of course, you who spoke the very creation order into existence and the power of your word can break patterns in the power of your same word. We call you a deliverer, and we each need to be delivered from something because we've all been conceived in sin, and we refuse to elevate some sinful coping mechanisms above the others. We're all on the run from a good and gracious God thinking we could do better at running our lives. Forgive us, giver of life. We accept forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered enough for each of us, children, parents, grandparents, who suffered enough for each of us. Oh God, somehow in the power of your Holy Spirit, would you deal with the guilt and the shame and all the rest that perhaps a number of these good folks here tonight are experiencing? Would you cast sin behind your back? Would you forgive the guilt of our sin? Would you repair us and make us healthy so that we could shout out, My Father is the best. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.